The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. My guest this week is political historian and author of The Impossible Office, The History of the British Prime Minister. Sir Anthony Selden, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Before we discuss your latest book, I'd like to ask you about an article you wrote in June for The Spectator. You make the case that Boris Johnson could become one of our greatest prime ministers. What made you draw this conclusion? Well, I'm not saying that I'm a fan of him or, or not. I mean, it's it's not a political point. But if we look at the truly great, great prime ministers, uh, we might pick out um, Churchill, uh, Lloyd George, uh, Clement Attlee, Thatcher, Gladstone. Um, what they have in common, those um, uh, liberals, Labour and Tory PMs is that they all really shifted the agenda. They were all in power at historic times. So what tends to happen is that historic um, events tend to make historic prime ministers more than historic prime ministers making historic events. So if we look at, uh, at Lloyd George, First World War, Churchill, Second World War, Thatcher, end of the Cold War and the Falklands War, Lloyd George, end of the Second World War, Korean War, beginning of the NHS, beginning of the mixed economy, beginning of NATO, beginning of the peacetime special relationship. 
with the US, beginning of the end of empire with India. You know, these are great historic events. So let's now turn to Boris Johnson and look at uh, what he has done. Um, COVID is a massive historic event. It's been the worst economic crisis for 300 years and the worst health crisis since the flu epidemic after the First World War. So, though, you know, COVID is a massive and the COVID recovery, massive historic event. So is Brexit. And Brexit uh, is for worse or better, um, is a event which it ranks up there with the most significant events of the last hundred years in peacetime. Uh, and additionally, great prime ministers tend to win great landslide elections. Clement Attlee, 1945, Attlee, sorry, Thatcher, 1983, Lloyd George, 1918. Churchill didn't actually win a great uh, <laughs> landslide, but many of them have. Um, and of course, Boris Johnson won uh, the biggest Tory uh, victory for over 30 years. So, you know, Look, it, it, he's only had uh, two years as prime minister, but I'm saying that it is possible. He has the ingredients uh, of being a great prime minister, but whether they're going to blend together and make a, uh, make a cake um, uh, or whether it's going to be just an unholy mess of ingredients that don't match up, we've got to see. But, you know, there's a chance. Okay, so just drawing on Boris Johnson's electoral record, he won the London mayoralty twice. He led the historic uh, votes leave campaign in the EU referendum, and he won such a huge majority in 2019 at the general election. What do you think it is about him specifically that makes him so electorally successful? Charisma and likability and charm, but also uh, he matches up with very good um, uh, advice from media consultants and he employs uh, very clever people um, who um, uh, like Dominic Cummings, uh, who give him the slogans that help him win. So in 2019, uh, Get Brexit Done was uh, a very, very clever slogan. It was short. It was snappy. Uh, it's what it said on the tin. Um, so I think it's a mixture of having those slogans. And in 2016, I was a Remainer, but Remain lost. I mean, Remain was simply beaten um, uh, by a superior campaign. Um, and so I think it, it, it's it's the mixture to have charisma and charm and likability is not of itself enough. It needs to be uh, in, matched up with um, really neat, simple, coherent slogans that people understand. And frankly, the third ingredient is luck. And he is one lucky person. Let's move to the other side of the, the coin now and uh, move away from Boris Johnson. And let, let's have a look at Keir Starmer. He's not had a, much luck at the moment as leader of the opposition. He's overseen Labour's worst electoral results in the local elections. 
He lost the Hartlepool by-election to, to the Conservatives. What do you think he needs to do to cut through so that come 2024, the next general election, he stands a much greater chance at possibly beating Boris Johnson? Well, I'm not certain that he can do very much. He can't change who he is. Only four Labour uh, leaders have cut through and won power from opposition. Uh, they're Ramsay MacDonald, the first Labour leader, Clement Attlee, who won in 1945 and was Prime Minister overseeing that extraordinary domestic uh, and international agenda from 1945 to 50. Harold Wilson, who became Labour leader in 63 and won in 64 against the Tories after 13 years, and Tony Blair. And I'm afraid to say that, uh, that, that, that he, Starmer is simply, for all his personal qualities, he's simply in a totally different league. I mean, it's, you know, you, you're playing kind of Vauxhall division, uh, a very low level football league, or comparatively low, uh, compared, to, compared to Premier League. I mean, you know, uh, it, it just isn't, uh, he just isn't of the same quality as them. Now, the one he most resembles is Clement Atley, who wasn't a great orator, didn't have much charisma either. But that was a very different time. And so, although I find him very likable and very admirable, I don't think the party will ever win with Keir Starmer unless the Tories completely implode. In other words, it won't be a win for Labour, it will be a loss for the government. That's very interesting. And let, let's move on to discuss your new book. <laughs> if, the... if you disagree with me, do, do, do come <laughs> No, back. no, I, 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 I do, uh, I do I... agree with you. I, I've, I've struggled to see uh, Keir Starmer cutting through, I think, when you've got such a, a strong uh, leader like Boris Johnson, who has won these consecutive major ele uh, electoral victories, it, it is difficult for someone like him to cut through. It is so, David against Goliath. Uh, it but, really but is. Having yes. said that, having said that, David did win. So if he can find that that slingshot, uh, it is not impossible. Nothing's impossible <laughs> in history. Well, speaking of impossible, let's move to your new book, The Impossible Office: The History of the British Prime Minister. I'd like to start by asking you about the title of the book because it's called The Impossible Office? Question mark. Why do you present the title as a question? I was told very early on when I was um, trying to make it as a author, I think, by the way, I'm still trying to make it as an author. One always feels uh, one is only ever as good as one's last book and one can never write another. So I still feel I'm slightly struggling. Anyway, I was told never put a question mark in a title. Uh, so I started off without it because so many prime ministers have failed. There have been 55 prime ministers, and by my reckoning, only nine have significantly changed the face of history in Britain, which means that 46 out of 55 have not. So that's not a great strike rate, is it? And But then it somehow seemed to be too emphatic and too prescriptive uh, as a statement. So I put a question mark on it, uh, broke the rules that you shouldn't have question marks. And uh, I think that it is not impossible, but the way that many choose to do the job is impossible. It's not unlike 
anything that we set out to do in life, if you're uh, setting out, you're a school student and you're setting out in, to study your uh, A-levels, um, you need to um, know what it is you're going to be doing and you need how to know how to do it. Uh, those two things, what is it you're going to be doing and how are you going to do it? And most people, oddly, come to number 10 without knowing either of those things. Mm. So Theresa May didn't know how to be prime minister and she didn't know what she was trying to do. Uh, neither did Tony Blair for his first four years when he had the most political power uh, of all. Those who have been successful have had a very clear agenda. Sometimes the agenda has been thrust upon them by a war, for example. Sometimes they've come up with it themselves and they've known how to be prime minister. And, you know, being prime minister is a really tricky job. Mm. Uh, and a way not to do it is to come in with a bruiser who thinks everybody is crap and, uh, you know, shocking and terrible like Dominic Cummings did. And you make enemies of everybody. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, nobody, um, I mean, to come back to football, no one taking over from Gareth Southgate. Um, whenever that happens in 2079, you know, it, who comes in and trashes the coaches, trashes the spectators, trashes the, the, the players, trashes the clubs. I mean, you know, come on, you're not going to win that way. That's not how, you know, that you, in a democracy, I mean, maybe it works in a, uh, in, in a um, dictatorship that way, but it doesn't in a democracy where you have to mm. persuade people and so persuasion is vital. You know, that, that is the, the key ingredient. Prime Minister's only as persuasive, only as effective as, the, as their ability to persuade. And what, one of the things I, I love the, about the book is the imagined conversation between Sir Robert Walpole, the first Prime Minister, and Boris Johnson, the 55th Prime Minister, in the opening chapter. And you know, it's, it's fascinating to see that whilst obviously the times and situations have changed in the 300 years of the office's existence, many of the roles and responsibilities of the prime minister have remained the same. Why, why do you think the office as we know it today has endured for so long? Well, that's another great question. Uh, I mean, in that conversation, I just thought, let's try and pick out some similarities. What tends to happen as political scientists a-level uh, university studying politics, uh, you look looking very much at today's structures. You're not looking at the past very much. Mm -hmm. And historians don't really look at the present day. So I tried to link up history and political science and show the continuities. And the fact is that Boris Johnson, like Walpole, their prime job is to keep the country safe internally from uh, rebellions and from epidemics to keep the country safe from abroad, to strengthen the position of the country abroad, abroad to bolster trade, uh, to um, perpetuate themselves in power, to uh, keep political stability. I and mean, these things are, are the same over time. And also, you know, it's interesting, both of them went to the same school they to, learned in the same buildings they then went on to um oxbridge um uh, they uh then went into politics they're both chancellors they came to uh to the prime ministership after a crisis south sea bubble and uh, brexit 
they both nearly lost their um, jobs and lives in their first year in office. They were both uh, living in number 10 with a woman, not their wife, 25 years <laughs> younger than them. I mean, you know, incredible similarity, both big bon vivers, you know, both were big people. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, I just thought that that was fun. And how the job mm. survived, I think the job survived because of Walpole did it for 21 years and he really cemented the office. And then uh, Pitt the Younger, uh, at the end of the century, beginning of the 19th century, did it for 19 years. And they kind of, again, he again cemented the office. But also it's a lot to do with the fact that Britain didn't have a, a revolution after 1721 mm. when Walpole was appointed outside of Ireland, didn't have a civil war outside of Ireland, uh, wasn't invaded by a foreign power. So there was a continuity that there wasn't there in um, France, which had a revolution, Spain, civil war, Portugal, Italy, uh, Germany didn't, Italy didn't even exist. Um, the, the fact that Britain had consolidated itself, had its revolution and civil war, got it over and done with in the 17th century, had a uh, monarchy that was a constitutional rather than an absolute monarchy. So. Britain had kind of matured earlier and therefore was more uh, suitable for, for the prime ministership to, to take place. But, you know, it, we, we could have lost the job. I mean, it, the, the office could have disappeared. And so, something else that's endured al alongside the office of the prime minister is, of course, the union. And the book refers to uh, devolution as an institutional constraint to the office. Do you think Tony Blair was right to pursue devolution for Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland in the way he did? Or do you think he created an unnecessary problem for himself and his successors? Both, I think. I think it was pretty inevitable that the pressure for greater autonomy, you know, it was pretty unstoppable. He tried to stop it and didn't put in uh, the measures he did to give greater power and, uh, um, in Scotland and Wales then I think that problems would have arisen. Um, there's no guarantee that the unrest that broke out in Ireland couldn't break out elsewhere, remote though that seems as a possibility. But by doing it, what it didn't do was it didn't make the Scots think, well, that's you know, super English, that's tremendous. We're very grateful indeed to have these greater powers. We're now going to become loyal Brits. You give somebody something, generally they want to have more. Um, and it's going to be an unholy struggle for the next 25 years in Scotland, not in Wales, holding the union together, uh, as it will be in, in Ireland, um, in as far as Ireland um, shouldn't be unified. I mean, there's, there's a strong case for saying that Ireland is geographically a single country, uh, separated from mainland Britain by a much wider um, chunk of water than the English Channel separating it from France with its own culture and history and traditions. Mm -hmm. um, and there is obviously a compelling case for saying that Ireland uh, should. So Brexit, uh, as well as, I, I think, and more than the reforms, 
uh, instituted by Tony Blair after 1997 have made it uh, at least questionable whether the territorial and political integrity of Britain will be able to to remain the same. And with Scottish nationalism becoming increasingly popular, and of course you mentioned the uh, troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, rising tensions particularly around Brexit, is Boris Johnson the man to save the union? Well, um, many ask that question. He is the prime minister. He can't be got rid of. You can't bring on somebody to uh, take a penalty and and then take them off the pitch again. You can't you, you can't bring on somebody who the Scots might like much more. I'm not certain. Actually, there are many Tories who the Scots might like much more, but Ruth mm. Davidson. Uh, who led the Scottish Tories clearly is one of those people. I mean, if Ruth Davison was Prime Minister, that would do a lot to all as well as ex- exacerbating some tensions within Scotland. It would she would be a much better advocate for the unity of the union between England and Scotland uh, being maintained than Boris Johnson, who is not liked nor trusted. Uh, north of the border. Okay, and I'd like to move away from uh, from talking about the book and discuss your recent appearance at the uh, Chalk Valley History Festival to speak about the book. And it, it's fair to say it caused some controversy. Uh, the Daily Mail reported that a group of left-wing activists tried to claim that Winston Churchill was no better than Adolf Hitler, which is really just such a ludicrous claim. But as we see more and more, t- typically left-wing activists engage in this new sort of historical revisionism. Is this a symptom of a new, uh, quote-unquote, woke culture running through academia? So I, I think that there are very important um, and uh, necessary adjustments that need to take place to the curriculum mm. to make it a better representation of, of the country that Britain now is. But at the same time, one can go too far. And to say that there's any equivalence between Churchill and the Nazis is so ahistorical that, mm. that it doesn't, it's not worth any further comment. Of course, mm. Churchill made mistakes. We are all the products of the backgrounds through which we live. And I think that that is something that can be too easily forgotten when we're looking at Gladstone, for example, mm who was a supporter of slavery in his early career and then moved away from it. We are, all of us, uh, the products and things that today uh, seem to be very respectable might well be seen in years to come as being outrageous. So what I was trying to say and what I believe in is that we should try and understand rather more and condemn a little less. Uh, And I think that that the, the militancy, while understandable, is not helpful. Um, and reason is a much better weapon than aggression in changing hearts and minds. We need to understand why the past was as it, as it was, why people who were not, sometimes they were bad, often they weren't bad, had the views that they had, and understand 
uh, that takes us much further into understanding history than trying to burn books and, and trash uh, uh, people's reputations. So do, do you think this militancy, as you said there, this militant culture that's developed within uh, mostly students has come from something much more innate within our universities and academic institutions? Do you think education has moved towards a much more defined left-wing bias? Well, you know, I was at university 40 years ago and it was ostensibly far more left-wing then than it is now. And there were prevailing mindsets about what was acceptable to say and not acceptable to say. Uh, so I think we can get lost and exaggerate. I think as Churchill also said, uh, always purported to have said, if one isn't left-wing uh, before the age of, I don't know what it was, 25, um, one lacks a, a, a heart. And if one's still left-wing by the age of 50, uh, then one lacks a head. I mean, whether or not he said that, one can understand the point. Um, and um, radicalism, wanting to challenge the status quo, is part of being young, but we um, should also, uh, those who don't hold those opinions shouldn't be held in contempt uh, and should have an absolute right to uh, be heard. And, uh, and the fear of a monoculture where there is only one set of values which are legitimate to express is antithetical to uh, good learning and, and, and good balance. And um, uh, people will then suppress their views and their questions. Um, and that isn't uh, good. I mean, clearly, some views are totally unacceptable. Anybody who advocates uh, violence, um, I think anybody who purports to tell deliberate or spread deliberate untruths, such as the Holocaust uh, didn't exist, uh, mm. is uh, shouldn't be uh, given a platform, at least on a university. I mean, if people in university want to go and hear somebody talking about these things, then they can, uh, the students who want to have these speakers can hire a, a, a civic hall. But it's not a job mm. of a university to spread untruths or to spread hate, but mm -hmm. to have people who are challenging uh, views against a prevailing mindset, uh, you know, that, that's important because often the, the views that, that can prove most important can be the most challenging. I'd like to finish by asking for your thoughts on two questions. The, the first is, who do you think overall has been the best prime minister? Uh, I think Pitt the Younger was, was the most heroic and the, the most multi-talented. Uh, Prime Minister between 1783 and 1806, with the exception of 1801 to 1804, was the most extraordinary of the human beings who sat as Prime Minister. And the worst, I think there are many contenders for that. In the book, The Impossible Office, I drew a distinction between noble failures. And I said, for example, I think Theresa May was a noble failure because even though she failed completely on her core mission which was to find a, a Brexit solution around which the country could um, 
unify. She failed on that. At least she tried extraordinarily hard and uh, sweated blood to try to achieve it. Compared to ignoble failures, who were people who were lazy or corrupt. And I'm afraid that, to give another a recent example, Anthony Eden, Prime Minister in 1955 and 57, who had been Churchill's Foreign Secretary in the war and before the war, and who was um, highly principled, uh, resigned in 1938, uh, was Foreign Secretary again from 1951 to 55, and responsible for helping bring peace to which it lasted in, in Indo, Indochina, Vietnam War in 1954 after the NDN Phu. I mean, you know, he was a, a, a battle. He was, you know, a very principled figure, but completely misread uh, General Nasser, the Egyptian leader, and mm -hmm. took the country into a disastrous war, which damaged Britain's standing in the world. Uh, and then lied to the House of Commons about it, then tried to cover up the lie. So th that isn't the kind of behaviour that one wants. So, I mean, he's a tragic. So, so I think I think there are different kinds of, of failures, mm. but it certainly wouldn't be the Theresa Mays or indeed the Neville Chamberlain, who by his own lights was trying to do what he thought was right for the country in uh, not going to war earlier with Hitler. And final question. Who do you think will be the next prime minister? Well, uh, you're asking me the day after Sajid Javid has become the Minister of Health. And it's very hard for Chancellor of the Exchequer. One might have said Rishi Sunak. Um, but Chancellor of the Exchequer often don't become uh, prime minister. And uh, they become unpopular. When they do become prime minister, they're often not very good prime ministers. Jim Callaghan, uh, Gordon Brown, for example. Some would say John Major, though I think John Major was better prime minister than people allowed. I would say at the moment Sajid Javid, but you, but you know, partly because he hasn't made the mistake. If Boris Johnson fell under a bus, uh, I think he would win it now. But you know, two years down the line, he would have made enemies, made mistakes, and you know, there'll be a fresh face coming up, quite possibly female. We'll see. Sir Anthony Selden, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to, to be with you and thank you for having me. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.